Galatians chapter 4. Our text this morning is chapter 4, verse 4. But I'm going to read the first seven verses of this passage just for the context here. Beginning in verse 1. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, differeth nothing from a servant, though he be lord of all but is under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the Father. Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that are under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because ye are sons... God hath sent forth the spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Wherefore, thou art no more a servant, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. We have now come to the last month of the year 2020. Our theme for this year has been redeeming the time in 2020. And we started out with a verse that we've adopted as our theme verse for the entire year. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 16. And then the first Sunday of each month, we've had a parallel passage or verse in our bulletin reminding us of the importance of redeeming the time. And I've spoken on that particular verse at the first Sunday of each month, and we'll go ahead and continue that this morning. But just by way of reminder, in February, we considered a time to work. In Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 10, Whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with thy might. For there is no work, nor device, nor knowledge, nor wisdom in the grave, whither thou goest. In March, a time to wake, Romans 13, 11. And that knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. Then, of course, we had a two-month break. And we picked up in June uh, a time to walk, Colossians 4, 5. Walk in wisdom toward them that are without, redeeming the time. July, a time to warn, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. In August, a time to be wise. In Psalm 90, verse 12. So teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. September, a time to witness. We considered the words of our Lord in John chapter 9, verse 4. I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night cometh when no man can work. In October, a time to weigh, 1 Peter 4.17. For time is come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel? Last month was a time to watch, 2 Timothy 4.6. For I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. And today we look to this passage in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, and consider a time to worship. But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law. We've sought to emphasize this throughout the year, reminding us of the importance, the realization that time is fleeting. Our life is but a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. 
What we do now for Christ matters a great deal. And so with that, we conclude this series this morning, considering this passage of Scripture. I thought it'd be fitting, in light of this approaching Christmas season, to conclude our series with this particular verse, which deals with the birth, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll look this morning at the time of God's redemption, the person of God's redemption, and the manner of God's redemption. So notice with me, if you would, Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. It starts out by saying, but when the fullness of time was come. 4,000 years elapsed between the giving of the promise and its fulfillment. And a natural question one might ask is, why so long? There's something about us as individuals. We don't like to wait. But God in his wisdom determined this That date, whatever date it was when Jesus was born, that was the time which God in his infinite wisdom counted best for Jesus to be born into this world. The phrase, when the fullness of time was come, indicates the gospel came at a specific time determined by God. It wasn't happenstance, it wasn't coincidence, it wasn't karma, it wasn't fate, it wasn't it was a matter of God choosing when his son would be born into this world. In fact, in Romans chapter 5 verse 6, Paul refers to this time as due time. For when we were yet without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. So his birth in coming into this world and his death in leaving his physical life were determined by the Lord God. This term, it's a very inclusive term which refers to all God in his eternal wisdom had seen necessary to take place before the right time would come in fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. This passage, this verse, demonstrates the sovereignty of God. You see, Satan greatly opposed the coming of Christ and his work of redemption, but it came about just as God planned. You know, God has always had a plan for the ages, a plan for mankind. And what's even more amazing is God has a plan for each and every one of us. How wonderful God is to not just care about the masses, but to care about us as individuals. Well, history tells us God had a hand in preparing civilization for the reception of Christ. I just mentioned these briefly. How is it that God prepared the world for the coming of Jesus? First, by means of the Roman Empire, all the world was under one government so that there was no political obstacle in the spreading of the gospel from one nation to another. This included the benefit of the Pax Romana, the Roman peace that had been established both on land and on sea. And then that uh, there was a political and economic stability as a result of that. But also you had the uh, construction of over 50,000 miles of a a highway system throughout the Roman Empire. That's pretty incredible when you think about that. And then as well, there was a strict legal system in place. 
So not only that, God used the means of the Greek language to help prepare the world for his coming. So the majority of the world used one tongue. And as a result, it made easy communication of the gospel among different peoples from other nations. Now, granted, it doesn't mean the gospel was always easily received, but at least it was easily communicated because people in many countries were familiar with the Greek language by means also of his chosen people, the Jews. Having the religious center in Jerusalem, yet being scattered throughout the world, and by the way, that was the result of the diaspora, the, uh, when, when uh, the two countries, Judah and Israel, were defeated by their enemies, the Jews were spread all around the world, and as a result, the Jewish faith, the Jewish religion, also spread around the world. While in exile in Babylon, you had the establishment of synagogues that were used as places of worship or schools or courts. So you already had this system in place among the Jews where they chose to go to a specific location and to worship on a regular basis. So that, of course, opened the door for Paul and others to be able to go into these temples, these synagogues, these Jewish places of worship, and preach the message also. And along with that, You had during that time, or during the following the time of the exile, during the time of the return, Ezra had gone ahead and compiled or collected the books of the Old Testament. So now they had a complete Old Testament that made it possible for the uh, the evangelists, the apostles, the prophets to to, uh, preach the gospel uh, from those Old Testament pages. And people actually had uh, uh, access to that. And then also, by means of God's written word. It was just the time when all the prophecies centered in him, and where there could be no doubt to their fulfillment. You know, if, if the birth of Christ satisfied one or two or three, or maybe even a half a dozen prophecies, there'd be reason for people to argument. But there were literally Dozens of prophecies fulfilled when Christ was born. Dozens more fulfilled throughout his ministry. And yet many more will be fulfilled when he returns again. But here we have God's written word who foretold the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Each of those factors in one unique way or another was key to the spread of the gospel and indicates God's timing was perfect. So, in the, when the fullness of time was come, when everything was ready, God allowed Jesus to be born. Back to our initial question, why so long? We don't know. We just know God's ways are above our ways. And our thought, God's thoughts are not our thoughts. God in his wisdom chose to allow the world to go through all the many things that it did But when the time was right, Jesus was born. Not only do we see the time of his coming, but the person of God's redemption. Again, notice our verse. God sent forth his son. You know, this implies the son of God was already in existence. John chapter 16, verse 28, Jesus said, I came forth from the Father and am come into the world. Again, I leave the world and go to the Father. 
You see, Jesus was already in existence. Understand that when he, Jesus Christ was born of Mary and Joseph, his stepfather, that was not the beginning of his existence. As God, he already existed. But as man... That's when he started, when he received a human body. So that's, that's a, a confusing thing for a lot of people to understand. But Jesus Christ was equally God and man. Not part God, part man, but 100% God, 100% man. The idea here is that God sent his son. In God's plan, he had an answer for mankind's problem. The problem is that of sin. Man was in need of redemption. Man needed help. Mankind could not save themselves. And as a result, God said, I have an answer. Aren't you glad God's answer is wholly sufficient? By the way, the word sent here refers to Jesus being given a mission. God commissioned his son to bring about the redemption of humanity. Notice this task wasn't given to an angel or some other divine creature. It wasn't given to some great leader among men, but it was God's very son whom he sent. God loved mankind so much that he would send no less than his only begotten son into the world. We're all familiar with John chapter 3, verse 16, which refers to that great truth. Why don't you say it with me? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. How many millions of times has that verse been read aloud or quoted? And it will never lose the impact or the importance when it was first spoken. Verse 17, Jesus went on to say, For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Yes, Jesus Christ is God's answer for mankind. John chapter 6, verse 28, Jesus said, I came down from heaven, not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. God's mission was for Jesus Christ to come into this world, do the work of God, provide a plan of salvation and a means of redemption for all mankind. And Jesus did exactly that. So much so that Peter could declare in Acts chapter 4 verse 12, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Then we have the great declaration of Paul in Philippians 2 but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even unto the death of the cross. Wherefore God hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is a great promise in Scripture. It has not yet been fulfilled. There are many who passed from this life to the next not believing Jesus Christ is God. There are many alive today 
who would denounce and oppose this great truth. And there yet will be many to come. But there's coming a day when Jesus Christ will be recognized as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. What a joy to know we are a part of that crowd who prior to passing from this life acknowledged Jesus is my Lord. Yes, the person of God's redemption is Jesus Christ. We could go into a lot more detail about that, but I think you understand the point quite well. Without trusting in Jesus Christ, there is no hope of eternal life in heaven for anyone. You have the time of God's redemption. You have the person of God's redemption. The manner of God's redemption. Notice the last phrase in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law. There's two parts there we consider. The fact that God sent forth his Son confirms the deity and eternal existence of Jesus Christ. But the next two phrases give us further insight as to Christ's being. First, made of a woman. That refers to his incarnation. The fact that he was born into human flesh. The word made indicates that you're dealing with something that's not eternal. It's something that had a beginning. This is where a lot of people get confused. Quite frankly, the Catholics and many other religions get this wrong. Mary was not the mother of God. She was the mother of Jesus Christ, the human Christ. Jesus, in human form, began at the time of conception when Mary was conceived by the Holy Ghost. Not Mary and John, Mary and the Holy Ghost. When he was born into this world... It was evident that God had a plan for mankind, but his plan was being sent through a human. We'll get into more of that in a minute, but this is where a lot of people don't understand. Jesus was, the human Jesus, was born at that time. As God, he already existed, but the word made is referring to the human aspect of Christ. And by the way, You know, a lot of people say this passage deals with the virgin birth and all of that. You can read that into it, but I don't think that's specifically what is being talked about here. The reason I read the context, the first seven verses of this chapter, it deals with the aspect of someone becoming a child of God. And it deals with the doctrine of adoption. We don't have time to get into all of that this morning, but it's the idea we are adopted. We are born into the family of God. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. See, this passage is referring to how we get into the family of God. And it is through the Lord Jesus Christ, who was born into this world in human form. He was made of a woman. God's promise was that the Messiah would be the seed of, or descendant of a woman. And Paul alludes to that fulfillment here in this passage. What am I referring to? Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. 
Many of you know this, but I'll remind you that passage has been referred to for some time as the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel. It reads, and I will, this is God speaking to Adam and Eve. He said, I will put enmity, and, 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 and excuse me, God, God is speaking to Adam, Eve, and the serpent. I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. A lot of things in that verse of scripture, but God is saying, I am going to uh, establish a plan of redemption for mankind, and that plan is going to come through the seed, the descendant of this woman, Eve. The serpent, his head would be bruised. That's a reference to death. The heel would be bruised, referring to the suffering of Christ on Calvary's cross. But Paul is alluding to the fact that God promised that the plan of redemption would be through uh, this woman. You understand it's necessary to accept this truth in order to be saved. The truth that Jesus Christ was born of a woman, that he was a human being. You see, there were many that lived during the time in the first century that, that believed Jesus was God, but they didn't believe he was a man. They either believed he was a spirit or he's a manifestation of God's, of what God intended him to look like, but they didn't believe he was a real man. John addressed this, 1 John chapter 4, verse 1. Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Listen. Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist, whereof ye have heard that it should come, and even now already is it in the world. See, during the first century, after the time when Christ passed off the scene, and you have the apostles carrying out the work of God in the spreading of the gospel, there were those who were saying, no, Jesus was God, but he wasn't a man. And John is setting them straight through holy writ here. It's interesting when you consider the many false concepts, philosophies, theologies out there where they'll take a passage of scripture, twist it, pull it away from its context, and establish or build some false teaching on that misunderstanding of scripture. John is making it clear, Jesus Christ is God and man. And that's one thing we see throughout the book of 1 John. But not only that, notice not just his incarnation, he was made of a woman, but his character. He was made under the law. As one of the human race, he was subject to the law of God. You ever talk to somebody in a position of authority and their attitude is, I'm the boss. I can do what I want. Will you think about that for just a moment? Jesus Christ, when he came into this world, he was God. <laughs> he spoke the world into existence. Don't you think he could have done whatever he wanted and been fine in his earthly ministry? But yet he chose to place himself under the law. Why is that important? Because it showed that he and he alone could obey the law of God. See, the Bible says if you offend the law in one point, 
you've broken the whole thing. You know, a lot of people's attitude is, well, I haven't been that bad. After all, yeah, there have been some sins, but really, I mean, not that many. From God's perspective, one sin is enough to cause a person to be cast headlong into eternal damnation. The wages of sin is death. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Yet Jesus Christ put himself under the law to demonstrate that he was God. In doing so, he proved he was qualified to be our sacrifice. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 14, For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Beloved, that ought to settle it. There are many today who will say, well, Jesus could sin, he just chose not to. No, no. He was God and could not sin. Think about this verse. John chapter 8, verse 7. Remember the story of the woman taken in adultery? How the Pharisees and the religious crowd, they were trying to trap Jesus, as they often did attempt to do so. They brought this woman who was an adulteress. How odd they didn't bring the man. But what was Jesus' response after hearing their accusations? In chapter 8, verse 7, he said, He that is without sin, let him first cast a stone at her. Is that what he said? Some of you are thinking, that didn't sound right. No, because he didn't say that. He said, He that is without sin among you. Let him first cast the stone. You see, if he'd have left that that little phrase, among you, out, he would have been required by his own command to stone this woman because he was the only one without sin. You see, he was careful to demonstrate to others throughout his ministry, he did not sin. He's the only one that could say that. Just as it is necessary to accept the truth of the incarnation. He was human to be saved. It is necessary to accept the truth that he was sinless because he was God in order to be saved. 1 Peter 1.18, For as much as you know, you are not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Yes, Jesus Christ, the sinless, spotless, perfect Son of God. You have here, in considering this thought, a reminder that it is time for us to worship, being grateful for the time of God's redemption, the person of God's redemption, and the manner of God's redemption. I'm going to close with an illustration. This is a little bit longer than, than I usually do, but it helps us to visualize this concept of Christ coming to mankind. How many of you ever been to Niagara Falls? Okay, most everybody. Pretty amazing sight, isn't it? You realize if you fall into the water <laughs> before the falls, you're toast. Well, 
a little above Niagara Falls, there's a cluster of islets, uh, and uh, one of them is called Goat Island. And no doubt if you've been to Niagara Falls, a number of you have been out on Goat Island. Between Goat Island and the shore, there's a stream, and that's of course on the uh, U.S. side, there's a stream of some breadth, and it is very swift. You can cross over it with a little wooden bridge, but one day a man was uh, painting that bridge, and while doing so, he slipped and fell into the water. He was carried down that, that stream. Though he struggled hard to make it for shore, he wasn't doing so well. The current was too strong for him, and down he went. And It seemed in just a few moments he would be uh, forced over the side, down the falls. But Just as it appeared that all hope had gone, he was able to grasp hold of a rock and hold on, but his strength was fast passing away. There was no hope. You can imagine, there's just, there's just nothing could be done in a situation like that. By this time, a crowd had gathered on shore and seen what had taken place. They tried one thing after another, but were unable to reach him. Finally, one brave man came forward, and they tied a rope to him. And he went down into the water and floated toward the man to be able to grab hold of him. And then he was pulled safely back to uh, the, the shore. Pretty incredible when you think about that. Without the help of another, that man who fell into the water surely would have perished. You take this story as an illustration of a man being saved from the peril of going over Niagara Falls, and we look at it in light of this passage of Scripture. In Jesus Christ coming to redeem a hopeless mankind. In doing so, if man is to be saved, these six conditions must be met. And by the way, they're fulfilled in Christ. Someone from the shore must undertake to save the person in peril. The helper has to leave the shore so that he can go to the one in danger. It's not enough to pity one's condition from afar. There must be actual contact. In order to reach the person, the deliverer must be within the sweep of the law. That's why Jesus Christ was made of a woman made under the law. The rescuer must bear the drowning man's share of the danger. The rescuer must have strength enough to get safely back to shore. The rescuer, the Savior. The Savior and the saved must be firmly bound together. Otherwise, the strain would be too great for the one in peril to be redeemed. Yes, it is the Lord Jesus Christ who left the splendor of heaven, departed from the shores of glory, and came to this world, placing himself under the law, experiencing our peril, our pain, our suffering. And he did so that he might redeem mankind. Yes, Jesus Christ, what a wonderful, wonderful Savior he is. This season, it is a reminder that it is a time to worship he who is mankind's only hope. For when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made 
under the law. Why? Verse 5. To redeem them that are under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons.